I feel like we could avoid so much of this whole crisis feeling if we just gave ourselves permission to change. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape. This is definitely a book-centric episode, and today's guest has her book available on Audible. So if after you listen, you want to give Audible a try, head over to audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape and look for I Miss You When I Blink, and you can get it as a free audiobook. Hey, everybody. Welcome to my birthday month. I hope you all enjoy it. April and I are both glad that you're here. I'm Nancy, and we're here talking about that phase of life where you sometimes injure yourself doing dumb stuff like sleeping or cleaning the linen closet, but you have enough perspective to move on. I, for instance, have learned to live with the misshapen toe that I earned when a heavy flashlight dropped directly onto my foot while I was putting away some sheets back in 2015. So I'm not bitter, at least until sandal season. It's okay. Before we get into today's interview, I wanted to remind you of a couple of big dates coming up this Saturday night. So five days from now, you will see me in the DJ booth at the Cat Club in San Francisco spinning a whole lot of English beat music. Yes, fun young animals. Yes, general public, obviously. I'm not a beginner here. But also some Echo and the Bunnymen and... Now that I actually have my plays together, I can also promise some Willie Nelson. It's true. It's going to be an eclectic night. All the details for this next Cat Club event are on the Midlife Mixtape Facebook page and at midlifemixtape.com. This one's going to be a fundraiser for Bay Area Food Bank, so please bring your quiet money, as they used to say, and uh, throw it in the champagne buckets and let's try to help our neighbors. On May 9th, I'm emceeing an open mic reading night here in Oakland to benefit Oakland Technical High School, the public high school my kids have attended. And I will be reading from my forthcoming book, The Thank You Project, Cultivating Happiness, One Letter of Gratitude at a Time. If you're interested in reading your work, head over to midlifemixtape.com for more info and to sign up. All the proceeds benefit the school. And hey, if you even just want to come and hang out and listen to some great writers, eat some snacks, and have Kathleen Caldwell, the Great Good Place bookstore owner, tell us about her summer reading recommendations, come join us. On to today's guest. Mary Laura Philpot is the author of the essay collection, I Miss You When I Blink, which came out from Simon & Schuster's Atria Books last week. Mary Laura is the author and illustrator of a little humor book called Penguins with People Problems, and her writing has appeared in publications including the New York Times, the Paris Review, the Washington Post, and oh, the Oprah Magazine, or as my Aunt Noonie calls it, the Orpa Magazine. Mary Laura is the founding editor of Musing, the digital magazine published by Parnassus Books. She's an Emmy Award-winning co-host of Award on Words, a literary interview show on Nashville Public Television. So don't blink, we're going to talk to Mary Laura Philpot. I am here today with Mary Laura Philpot, author of the essay collection, I Miss You When I Blink. Hey, Mary Laura. Oh, Nancy. Well, you know how this goes. There's an important first question in any midlife mixtape podcast interview. What was your first concert and what were the circumstances? Okay, I have two right. I, because I'm going to count the first concert I went to, but I'm going to also count the first concert I went to on purpose. Yes. The first concert I went to, to which I was taken as a child, 
was Lionel Richie, the Dancing on the Ceiling Tour. Fantastic. My dad is an ear doctor, and Lionel and the guys were in town for the show, and his drummer had some sort of emergency ear problem. And they went to see my dad, and my dad fixed him up in time for the show. And so as a thank you, they said, here are some tickets. Please come and and see us tonight. And so I went with- Come and dance on the ceiling with your family. (laughs) So I went with my dad. I was in seventh grade, which is like such an age where you don't want to go with your dad to a concert, but it was awesome. And he, you know, he had the piano that he got up and danced on and it was everything you would expect. A beautiful moment in 80s history. I had my three different Outback Red shirts on, like each one with the (laughs) collar popped out a little further than the next, you know? It's like layering the socks, but taste the rainbow. Totally. That was the first concert that I was taken to. The first concert that I went to that I used my own money to buy the ticket was Driving and Crying. And they played in an outdoor amphitheater. And I went over to my friend Sissy's house before the show and we cut off jeans with scissors and then we cut the sleeves off of button down Oxford shirts with scissors so that we could have cut off shirts and cut off pants <laughs> to wear. Them. You were really feeling the driving and crying vibe there. Yes. Fly me courageous. It was great. Where was the, where was the show? This was in Augusta, Georgia, which is where we lived at the time. This was toward the end of high school. And it was a big deal to like, you know, go to the concert with all our friends and we could drive at that point, so we were. Oh, sure. We were on our own. By the way, speaking of concerts, I just have to say the scene in your book where you mentioned the Hootie and the Blowfish concert had me howling. I'll just say that, and I will leave it. I will leave it there. Well, we can so. we can we can tease that one a little bit. We'll tell our listeners that is where I found my husband at a Hootie and the Blow <laughs> near the speaker, <laughs> yelling, "Hold my hand." <laughs> They keep a pen full of prospective husbands who right. bellow things from from the ground at a Hootie and the Blowfish concert. That's so right. single ladies had their head there now. There's a reunion tour coming up. Got <laughs> oh, I just saw that. Are you gonna go? I gave I gave him tickets for Christmas. Oh, how thoughtful. That's really sweet. Not my favorite band, but I'm glad you like them. <laughs> you know, I don't know that I would on purpose cue up Hootie right now. But I, I feel like... No, because I'm interviewing you for a podcast. Right. That would be super rude. <laughs> but for us in our personal history to go yes. to, to see them play again is meaningful. Do you know my first date with my husband was... Uh, I won tickets to a Goo Goo Dolls concert. Oh. I won because there was a radio call-in show about what is the number one shampoo in America. And I had also read that Wall Street Journal article that morning. This obviously was when I was in business school and read oh. the Wall Street Journal so I called in and told them it was Prell, Prell, and I won tickets to see the Goo Goo Dolls and sauntered up. Honestly, I'd had a lot of um, Swedish glug that night because we were writing Christmas cards. It was in December, and I sauntered up to my future husband and said, hey, you, I have two tickets to the Goo Goo Dolls. Do you want to go see this show with me? And he's like, sure. And we got there and they were so bad. This was very early on for the Goo Goo Dolls. They had not broken through yet. And he's like, can we please leave and go get a coffee? And that's what we did. And, you know. Was he impressed that you knew the the best-selling shampoo in America? You know, I think he was impressed that I had free tickets to something. So Mary Laura has a newsletter that I'm recommending to you guys. And you can, where do you sign up for the newsletter? Just on my website. If you go to marylaurafilpot.com, it's Mm -hmm. one of the menu items right there at the top says newsletter. 
And it always includes a book, a link, a song, and a picture in that order. And I love this newsletter. So I know from reading your song recommendations that you are very much on the pulse of new music. Like, you know what's what with new music. Where do you, how are you finding out about that? How are you staying current with stuff? Is it because you live in Music City, USA now? It's 100% because I live in Nashville. I live in Nashville yeah. where so much of the new music is coming from. And we have a really great radio station here. We, have, we actually, we have several great radio stations here. One of the ones that happens to be on in my in my car a lot is Lightning 100, which you can listen to online. And they really take pride in breaking new music and introducing people to new things. So I can't say that I know about all those new songs because I'm out on the music scene every night listening to bands. It's because I'm driving carpool and listening to this radio station that has done the work for me. Well, I pick up a lot of good tips from your newsletters. So there's a lot of reasons to subscribe to it, not just because of the music, but I recommend you guys check it out at MaryLauraPhilpot.com. And now... We're going to switch over to the main topic, which is your book, I Miss You When I Blink, which comes out, I'm sorry, it came out on April 2nd. We're actually broadcasting from the future now because we're taping this at the end of March. So we're all mixing up the time-space continuum, but let's pretend it's April 3rd and your book came out yesterday. So I've been looking for, yeah, congratulations. How was your fictitious (laughs) future? Imagine how your day was yesterday. How was it? It was delightful. So it's an absolutely beautiful memoir and essays. I got to see an advanced copy and I knew it was going to be great because I've been reading your work for years now. What what I didn't expect, I had I really didn't know what this book was going to be about. It's a memoir about midlife. It, and it's a really beautifully conceived memoir about midlife in the sense that you talk about experiencing these shifts and these slight adjustments that we make in this period that I think is so much more prevalent than the red Ferrari midlife crisis car. So can you talk about the title of the book and the first essay in particular and how this all relates to being in your forties as you wrote this? Like it's a big subject, but dive in. So the book is called, I miss you when I blink, which is a wonderful title. And I can say it's wonderful because I didn't come up with it. My son came up with it when he was little. We were, um, this was back when I was a freelance copywriter and I used to sit down in my little home office and work, work, work. And he would bring his toys and play on the floor. And it was like, when I hit my deadline for the day, we could get up and go to the park. So he was playing, I think he was drawing on a piece of paper and he was rhyming. He was saying like, I miss you in the sink and I miss you in the ring. And I tuned in just as he said, and I miss you when I blink. And it just struck my ear just so, and I I couldn't forget it. And at first I just thought it was cute. You know, I miss you when I blink. It's a cute phrase. And then the more I turned it over in my brain over the next several days and over the next several years, even it just became this touchstone phrase that I applied all this other meaning to. And I was at that time in my mid thirties. And starting to have inklings of that feeling where you recognize that there are past versions of yourself that are really, truly past, and that there are future versions of yourself that haven't happened yet, and that you have some control over what those future yous are going to be. But you're right in the thick of raising kids and driving carpools and trying to build your career. And it's, a, for me anyway, that the mid to late 30s were a stressful time. And I found myself missing things about my true self that I'd gotten kind of out of touch with. Mm-hmm. Like I would think back to myself in college and, and go, God, I was, I was so smart at one point. <laughs> Here I am sitting here writing a, a brochure about suitcases, but I used to write these really amazing papers about Virginia Woolf. 
and and as I carried that phrase forward with me over the years, I kept returning to it whenever I had that feeling of of feeling out of touch with who I really was. Right. And so that that is why it comes up again and again. And this it's interesting for me to hear you say it's a midlife book because it definitely, as I was writing it, I thought this is a this is a story about what it feels like to be at midlife. And then when we sent it out to early readers. I figured most of the response would be from other women in my same life stage. I'm in my mid forties and we started hearing from people at all these other ages, Mm -hmm. 25 year olds would write and go, how did you nail exactly what it feels like to be me right now in the first job I took out of college and feeling like I don't belong here and I want to get out and I don't know how to get out and I don't know how to start over and it's so stressful. And the more we heard from people, the more I came to realize this is really this isn't just a midlife crisis book. It's an anytime crisis book. It's your quarter life crisis <laughs> book. It's your, I think I want to have a baby, but I also want to leave my husband book. Not that that happens in my book, but I, like I heard from someone who said that. People who are at decision points in their lives are identifying with it. I was going to bring up the motif you have of multiple selves that we encompass during our lives, because that was really striking. And I thought a, a really cool way to think about who we are at midlife and how you integrate all those different people that you've been. So it doesn't surprise me that, I mean, we, we have that by the time we're 16, we have that by the, you know, when you're 25, it's just a pro- an ongoing process. So I could see where that would resonate with people of any age. Yeah. I was, it, I was pleasantly surprised to see that. So your background as a, you, you're a writer, you're a cartoonist, Mary Laura's got a very hilarious book of cartoons called Random Penguins. I recommend it. I have it on the nightstand in my guest room because I just think it's so funny. But um, one of your roles is that you work at a bookstore. You work at Parnassus Books in Nashville, which is Ann Patchett's wonderful bookstore, which I hope to see someday. I've never been there, but it's a dream. You gotta come. Yeah, well, come on, come on with your book. Yeah, I'll come and yeah. I'll come and do a signing there. That'd be fun. Um, but you and I have talked about this in the past that we both love memoir that where you think, oh my God, this could never happen to me. Like Glass Castle, Educated. Like I love those books where you dive in and think, thank the good Lord that it's happening to somebody else. But I think there's really a place for stories where you think she knows exactly how I felt. That's exactly the experience that I had. And that's what I think this book does. Yeah. I, I, well, I hope it does. You know, I wrote, I wrote an article last year for LitHub called Surviving the Ordinary, <laughs> Why We Need Memoirs of Regular Lives. And I, 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 like you, am drawn to the crazy memoirs about the escaping from the cults right. or, the, you know, the person who changes her name and leaves her town and gives away all her belongings and moves to the other side of the world. I love, love those books. But something that occurred to me midway or maybe three quarters of the way through writing this collection was there are people who come into the bookstore and they're looking for a book that meets them where they are. Mm -hmm. And they may not be at a point where they're ready to change their name and move across the world. They may not be at a point where they can blow up their lives to start over. And if the only narrative that's out there for reinvention is the blow up your life kind, it can make it seem as though it's just too daunting. Like you can't reinvent yourself unless you're willing to really throw your whole life away. And reinvention comes up so many times in my book. And in in this book, I tell the story of how five years ago, I moved with my family from Atlanta to Nashville and got this bookstore job. And that was a very reasonable sort of reinvention for me. But I think it's in addition to the wild and crazy stories, it's great and helpful to read stories of people who have reinvented themselves in smaller, iterative ways. 
Well, I think it humanizes something that I've talked about with a couple of past guests. Uh, on episode 37, I had Barbara Bradley Haggerty, who wrote the book Life Reimagined, The Art and Science of Midlife. I'm missing an adjective there, but a great book. And then in episode 46, Jonathan Rauch was on talking with me about his book about the happiness curve. And in both cases, these are nonfiction, very, you know, based in a lot of science and research, uh, the recognition that the idea of a midlife crisis being a big major change is not that helpful because it's not what most people go through. And it really is a series of smaller changes and sort of looking inside and saying, okay, what used to be the thing that I was striving for no longer works for me. And how do I recreate myself and how do I recreate my sense of identity without that? And that's, that's kind of where I think your book shows that happening. It shows it in action. Yeah. One of the things I, I have realized that we have found great language for in some ways, but not in other ways. I've heard people talking recently a lot about when you get divorced and your marriage ends, there is a way of looking at it where you don't say my marriage was a failure. You say my 12-year marriage was a success as a 12-year marriage. And to be clear, I am not divorced. Divorce does not happen in this book. I'm, I'm making a metaphor here. But she's taken him to a Hootie concert, you guys. It's true love. They're together forever. Um, but I feel like we can apply that same language to so many other things. Yeah. Especially in this phase of life that you and I are in. You, Especially if you're a type A person or you're a person who really likes to get things right and be successful, which I am, it can be hard to let go of something when it's time to make a change. But if you can say to yourself, okay, I loved this job for a decade. It was a great, successful yep. job for me for one decade. And now it is time for it to be over. And that doesn't mean you failed. And it doesn't mean you are in crisis. Like, I feel like we could avoid so much of this whole crisis feeling if we just gave ourselves permission to change. There's an essay in this book called The Joy of Quitting about how good it feels sometimes to quit something when it's not right anymore. And it doesn't mean that you are going back in time and saying it was the wrong choice to begin with. It may have been the right choice for a while, but then you reach a point where it's not anymore. And if you can let go of it peacefully, you can avoid a lot of that crisis feeling. Well, talk about lessons that you wish you could go back and tell your younger self, which was the last episode of the podcast. So I have a daughter who's a high school senior, and we are literally today, you know, supposed to get the message from the two schools that she's most interested in going to. And this whole season has been one of me reminding her and telling her friends if they will sit still long enough to let me give them this lecture, things will change. Like whatever you decide for the next four years, if you know, you can go to a college and you can transfer. Yes. Or you can just take a year off and not go to college, but you can't. And, and she has one friend in particular who's so tightly wound about this. And this was even before the stupid varsity blues admission oh, scandal, but this kid's so tightly wound. And I've said to my daughter about it, she should know that it's not permanent. Things can change. But I also get that she's 17 and there's no way to know that until you're in your thirties yeah. and forties and things have fallen apart and, and come back together yeah. again. And so I think that idea of the joy of quitting and making changes is something, it's just such a valuable lesson. I wish it could come yeah. earlier, especially for our kids. I do too. Like, I wish I could go back and say, it's, you know, I, I understand. <laughs> I've known you since you were little, me. <laughs> hey, me. Yeah. I know, I know your story. I know you, you believe that you are loved only when you are successful. And that is why you think you have to make the successful choice in every single decision, but <laughs> things will change and it's okay to choose something and then figure out you don't like it and quit it and do something different. That is a kind of success in and of itself. You don't have to dig in and stick with things just to prove that you can do it. But I think about this a lot as someone who started writing 
at 40. I mean, that was really when I made a change. I had been in the corporate world for 15 years. And how weird is it that we were both we, we were both working for IT companies developing ATM software. What the hell, Mary Laura? What were that, we well, doing? You did it longer than I did. Like, you really did it. I did it for a long time, and I was in Germany. That yeah. was strange. We're all so. in. I did it for a couple of years and then went, whoa, what have I done? And got out. But, that was- <laughs> but that's why I think about it, because I really liked it. I lo- and, and I think to this day, the fact that I'm not intimidated by technology much, I hate Snapchat, it's true, but- uh, you know, I I kind of love digging around with my WordPress blog and yeah, podcasting because I learned that at an early age. And I think so. I don't think I wasted 15 years that I should have been a writer. I think once I became a writer, I brought a really good set of technical skills to it. Yes. Same with marketing. I had a lot of marketing background. So do you ever think about what you've taken from past jobs and how they make you better at being a writer today? Oh, yeah. And I think that's such a healthy way to look at it, to, to say not that I wasted these years instead of doing what I was meant to do all along, but to go, the, you know, these were years that added to the person I became by the time I started doing what I wanted to be doing. And, you know, my my technology years were extremely brief. Anybody can read about this in the book. There's an essay called Good Job, where I go through all the jobs I had, starting with that one first step, first thing out of college, where I thought I was going to go to law school. I pulled out of law school at the last possible second, decided not to go, went down to the careers office and did an interview with the only company that was still interviewing. It was Anderson Consulting, now known as Accenture. And in that way that I that I had at that age where I was like, I can succeed at anything if I try hard enough. <laughs> I, you know, got online and got on to what was it at the time? Netscape. I got online and, and <laughs> fired up your AOL disc. I did. And I was like, what is consulting? And looked it up <laughs> and basically learned how to BS my way through an interview and convince these people Yes, I know I'm an English major, and it may appear on the surface as if I am not prepared for this job, but let me convince you that I am. Got that job. And it was job-wise completely the wrong thing for me to be doing. I didn't have the background. I didn't have the interest. I did not have the natural skill for it. But I met so many great people. I Mm -hmm. learned a lot about how large companies work. I went off to training school with my little class of new analysts. and In your fresh business suits, because it sounded like you had a great wardrobe. I put a ton of thought into what I wore. That's like my, that's my fallback. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, well, let me focus on the outfit. That much I control. Um, So it was almost like a mini business school type of experience. And that was something that later, two or three jobs later, I went to work for the American Cancer Society, which is headquartered in Atlanta, where I lived at the time. And I joined their corporate communications team. And one of the things they said when they hired me was, we love that you have this business background in addition to your your writing skills. And right. You are able to understand what we're trying to do as a, as a nonprofit. And I, it enabled me to work well with freelance clients. When I quit working full-time and started writing freelance and picking up corporate clients, I could speak their language. Right. So all those things added up to something good. And, and working as a copywriter, man, that is a great job. If you have plans to be a creative writer of some kind at some point and you need to pay your bills and have a job for now, corporate communications is awesome. You've learned to stop being precious about your words 
you got to write on a deadline. You got to write under a word count. You've got to churn things out fast. And there are measurable metrics around your writing. Like if you write your thing, your brochure, your website, whatever, effectively, it conveys whatever message the company needs to convey and they make money and it is successful. So you really learn to see evidence of, was that a successful sentence? Did it do what it needed to do? Right. Well, I always say if I hadn't had so many years of marketing and strategic planning and all that, I couldn't manage this writing career because I'm very good at sitting down and setting goals and assessing against that. I bring a business focus to it. And, you know, maybe I'd be a better writer if I'd started a lot earlier. And I quote you a lot when I got this book deal for the book that I have coming out this fall. And I said, I've actually been writing for 12 years and this is the first book that's broken through. And you said, I think you have to burn off a certain amount of words to get to the good ones, which I I love that phrase. I totally agree with that. Maybe I would have burned off my words earlier, but maybe I wouldn't have been so good about reading my agent's contract and asking questions about it, you know? So well, you would have had different things to say earlier in life. Like if you had had the time and the, you know, if all the stars had aligned eight years ago for you to write a book, it probably would have been a different book. Right, right. The book you, the book you are writing that's coming out this year that you have written is the book of things you had to say now. Right. Well, let me ask you, you had an essay in the book about having a time machine and how you wished you could go and visit your children at different ages. But I got very choked up when you talked about using your imaginary time machine to go see your younger parents. Yeah. Being able to go back and have conversations with them as they were. And especially now, you know, I've lost my dad and my mom's got dementia. So that I, I kind of fell apart reading that. And I wondered, that was the hardest one for me to read. What was the hardest one for you to write? That is apparently many people's hardest one to read. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a funny story for you. So this book is coming out under Simon & Schuster's Atria Books imprint. It started out with Touchstone Books, which was a different Simon & Schuster imprint, which actually folded and, and was merged into Atria midway through my publication process. So That's fun. And I feel like this happens all the time. Like published, No one ever sits still in publishing, so it's right. always sort of an adventure. But early on, there was a team assembled around this book, and it was time for the big Simon & Schuster sales conference, where someone from Touchstone would, would stand up and present, you know, these are the books we have coming next year. And the woman who was supposed to do that presentation actually had to hand my book off to someone else to present because she couldn't talk about it without crying. This essay, that essay called The Window, made her so, just got her so choked up. So that was a victory, Mary Laurie. You made a salesperson cry. Well done. Way to go. (laughs) Um, That one was, was hard to write, but I actually wrote it in multiple stages. So it is a, a further evolved version of an essay that I wrote for the LA Times after Prince died. Oh, right, right, right. When, when you lose your rock and roll idols, it suddenly makes you look around at your, your real life idols and kind of proactively miss them. That was a beautiful it, essay. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. I'd forgotten about that one. I loved that piece. Thank you. It was, it ran online and it was a, sh- it was a very short version. They didn't have much, much space. They were like, we just need a, like a one screen version of this. So it's really cut down. And in the book, I was able to expand it kind of back to its original version and add a lot more to it. So it was a very hard one to write in the beginning, but you know, I had many stages to get through it. So that, that was a hard one. I'm trying to think of what other ones were hard. All, all the ones kind of about three quarters of the way through where I really talk about the depression that I was in in my late 30s. Those were hard to write just because they're, they're probably the most vulnerable essays in the book. 
were you surprised about the process of telling your own story? Did you learn anything new that you didn't expect to when you sat down and started, opened, opened the document that became your book? I did not sit down to write this book and say, I am going to write a collection of essays with a theme of reinvention. And it is going to be the, you know, literary alternative to the blow up your life memoirs. All of the ways we are describing this book now are in retrospect. Mm -hmm. So I did not, it surprised me to get about two thirds or three quarters of the way into writing these essays and realized that I was revisiting the same themes again and again. I thought I was just writing piles of totally unrelated <laughs> essays. And, you know, maybe the only thread that ties them together is a little bit of humor in each one. And I was it's, well, well. It's a pretty big dose of humor, Mary Laura. Don't be so, don't yeah. be so mild. <laughs> I was surprised to see that what I was, I was asking and answering some of the same questions yeah. again and again. Like, how do you stay who you are after you've also become part of a family or a community? And what do you do when you feel like you've lost who you are? And how do you reinvent yourself? That was coming up again and again. And I didn't know at the outset that those were going to be the questions that I was asking and answering. Did you feel like you got your answers? <sighs> Somewhat. and But I, I did. And I also found some peace with not having an mm. answer. Being a type A person, which you get from the very beginning of this book, you see that that is the kind of child I was and that there was no way I was going to become anyone else than the adult that I turned into. But being that kind of person, you want an answer. You want to be able to go, I had a problem and I solved it. And here's the solution, the end. And one of the things I had to learn in my life and that you see me learning again and again in these essays is very often there are problems where there is no right answer. And so what you have to do is learn how to keep going without that certainty. And that not having certainty doesn't mean you're doing things wrong. It means you're living real life where there is no certainty. So maybe we just answered the last question of the interview, which is the one I always ask. What one piece of advice do you have for people younger than you? Or do you wish you could go back and tell yourself? I think if there's one thing I could go back and tell people, one thing that I actually do tell people regularly, younger friends or, or friends that come and ask for advice, not that I consider myself you know, an advice columnist, but advice that I give often is you can quit things. Mm -hmm. Like you're not a failure if you have reached the end of your time with something. It is okay to quit. And really, most of the people around you don't care. I spent so much time as my younger self worried about if I don't do this anymore, people are going to be upset or I'm going to let people down. And most of the time when I finally quit doing whatever it was I didn't want to do anymore, no one cared. And I got such huge relief and no one else felt anything at all about it, and it was fine. Are there cer specific circumstances you would have done that in? Uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot, <laughs> a lot of. You know, I had a twisted relationship for a long time with school volunteering. Like I thought that was how to be a good mom was to basically like live at the school and join every committee and be the president of everything. And those are all wonderful roles to have. And thank God for volunteers, and thank goodness for everyone who gives their time to good causes. But I did for a long time didn't grasp that I didn't have to do all of them at the same time. Right. And I got to a point right. where I felt kind of bitter about it, where I was like, oh, I give and give and give my time. And, you know, you can stop giving your time for a minute or you can give a little less of it or you can give it in a different way. Yeah. I had somebody recently. Oh, I know. I didn't go to the I didn't go to the the auction, mm -hmm. the, the high school fundraiser auction. And somebody said, oh, how could you skip it? And, you know, you got to you got to support the school. And I wheeled around. I must have looked like. <laughs> large Marge in that truck scene from Pee Wee Herman because my eyes bugged out of my head. And I'm like, let me tell you what I've done for that school in the past year. Right. Like, 
I've given my pound of flesh. I am not the one you're going to come to and say I should be doing right. more. I've done right. enough. Life happens in phases. And I have lived some phases where I was giving 200% of my time and resources right. to that kind of thing. I'm not in that phase right now because I can't be because there are only so many hours in the day, but I, I fully support whoever is. And they'll come back and get you, Mary Laura. They'll always come I'll be around back, again. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Mary Laura Philpot, the book is I Miss You When I Blink. It's a really wonderful read. I hope you'll check it out. Mary Laura, good luck on the tour. You've got a really busy month ahead, I think. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. You can be all over the place. So if you guys go to MaryLauraPhilpot.com, you can find out if she's going to be at a bookstore near you. And I encourage you to go out and see her if she is and enjoy the Hootie and the Blowfish concert. Thank you. <laughs> I just made a noise. So I'm going to have to edit that out. Yeah, no, I mean it. I mean it in all sincerity. Enjoy the Hootie and the Blowfish concert. Thank you. The only thing that makes me sad about this book is that Mary Laura was so busy writing it that she stopped doing this regular blog post feature that she used to do where she would caption high fashion photos with these ridiculous and uproariously funny descriptions. I didn't care about buying the September issue of Vogue, but I cared a lot about reading what occurred to Mary Laura when she looked at images of Prada models wearing like bondage gear and kilts and draped like wet noodles across a safari vehicle somewhere. I do miss her hot takes on those fashions. I also wanted to mention to you guys, I got the nicest note from a listener who had an idea for a topic she hoped I would cover on the show. And I'm still firming up the right person to talk to about it. But it was a brilliant suggestion on a topic that I would not have thought of. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation which is my invitation to you, listeners, to please feel free to get in touch with ideas for topics for future episodes. Maybe there's a Gen X-tastic dilemma or a concern or an opportunity that you're thinking a lot about here at the Midpoint, and you'd like to get a broader perspective on it. Or maybe there's someone doing midlife in a really admirable way that you'd like to hear from. Either way, let me know. Email me at dj at midlifemixtape.com or find me on social media at midlifemixtape, and I'll do what I can to make it happen. I'm really grateful for a broader perspective. I get that I'm kind of looking at life my own way, and I'm really inviting you to, to tell me what are the topics on your mind so I can learn about them too. All right, you cool cats. Have a great week, and thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. I wanna be, I wanna be free by